G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Uh, One of those conversations that could be an uncomfortable conversation. Uh, Look forward to uh, how you can be involved in it because there may be some lessons to learn from a new book that's out. Uh, Colin Barnes, the author of a book called They Conspire Against Your People, The European Churches and the Holocaust. Now, Colin Barnes examines how the European churches responded to the genocide of Jews in Europe. Now, he argues that the Nazi Holocaust did not begin with genocide, but progressed through a series of stages, stages like vilification, boycotts, deportation, ghettoization, and only then onto mass murder. Now, his research looked at both the Catholic and the Protestant churches across Europe and the systematic progression through all of those stages. And at each stage of that progression, the book examines both the church uh, precedence to it and the responses of the churches across Europe to that stage of the Nazi policy. Now, you can be a part of this conversation, and uh, if you're unfamiliar with the history, you won't be by the time you've listened into this conversation. And a conversation uh, which uh, I believe will be relevant to us today because we need to be able to learn from the mistakes of the past. Colin Barnes holds degrees in science and religion. He's lived and worked in Israel and in Pakistan. He's served as a missionary and taught theology. He recently joined King's Evangelical Divinity School in the United Kingdom as an undergraduate tutor of theology. His book is called They Conspire Against Your People, The European Churches and the Holocaust. And it was one of those books shortlisted for this year's Australian Christian Book of the Year. Colin Barnes, welcome along to 2020. Thank you for having me. Well, Colin, uh, congratulations on the book. Congratulations on being shortlisted for the Australian Christian Book of the Year. Uh, the material that you write about, it's pretty heavy going. And uh, and I guess for Aussies now saying these things that happened as, as some of the most significant events of the 20th century, I wonder how they might be relevant to us today in the 21st century. But you've seemed to have been able to gather those historical understandings and bring about a whole lot of great meaning from those things that have happened in the past and even brought into those things, uh, those things we need to watch out for today. Uh, congratulations on the book. Uh, how's things going with it? Well, I think the shortlisting has been a real shot in the arm for it. It's been brilliant. Um, I really praise God for that. It's actually forced me to think about, you know, why would somebody in Australia want to read this book? And that, that's been a really good journey for myself as well. And just thinking through the implications, what's going on, why it's important still today in Australia. Well, you've got history uh, over 1800 years. The Christian church persecuted the dispersed Jews uh, to prove that they were under God's punishment. We're going to get into some interesting and, as I mentioned, controversial conversations today because it's one of those sorts of conversations where I guess we could turn the blowtorch on ourselves and say, uh, what happened in the Christian church in all of those years? Now, no one listening to our conversation, and you and I included, were there. In some sense, it's not our fault because we weren't there. But there's another dimension to that in that we're a part of the Christian church and there were some things that went wrong in that time. When you talk about churches and their involvement in the lead-up to the Holocaust, you're not actually taking one uh, against another, like a Protestant versus Catholic, uh, and then the Orthodox. Everybody's in this together. Very much. I, I didn't want it to be sort of a, you know, ganging up on Catholics or ganging up on Protestants. Um, I've, I've tried to sort of make it about both right across Europe. So it's not just about Germany. It's about France, about Italy, about Hungary, about Slovakia, Poland, etc., and seeing how the churches across Europe were responding to these different Nazi policies in light of their own history and policies. 
So how do the Catholics and the Protestants uh, compare in the way that they were participating, almost uh, uh, endorsing some of those things that Adolf Hitler uh, eventually got to with the, the Holocaust? Well, in 1939, you get the Catholic press in Poland saying, we should be doing what Hitler's doing in Germany. That's, that's a great idea. And so you have, essentially, they're enablers for the first series of stages. So across Europe, you have anti-Semitic sermons in both Catholic and Protestant churches. You have churches calling for the boycotts of Jewish businesses. Um, you have churches calling for the expulsion of Jews um, in different countries um, like Slovakia, Hungary. The Protestant church in Germany calls publicly for you know, all the Jews to be thrown out of the country. So it, it's an appalling history. Um, but yes, across Europe you see vast areas of darkness and, and there's a lot of similarities. The real difference comes when you get to Jewish people who have been converted and who are Christian. Um, the Protestant church in Germany abandons them very quickly, whereas the Catholics do fight for their converts very hard, although neither side consider these converts to be Jewish, so they're fighting for their own. They're not fighting for the Jewish people as such. Let's just pause and reflect on this for a moment because sometimes difficult to understand how the history was developing at that time. Why was it that that the Jews were so disliked in so many of these European countries? And we'll get to the to those Jews who'd converted to Christianity, but but why were the Jews so so uh, you know badly thought of in those European nations? Depressingly, you have to put the blame with the church. Um, Jews weren't bad people. What had happened was from the second century onwards, the church saw the Jews as natural competitors. You know, the, the church was saying the Jewish scriptures are ours, the Jewish God is ours, the Jewish Messiah is ours. And people are saying, well, don't they belong to the Jews as well or don't the Jews have a prior claim? And so the church felt this need to denigrate the Jewish people to say, look, no, they're ours exclusively. The Jews lost them. And in a sense, what for Paul was the Jewish error, for the church became the Jewish nature. And so they, they tried to denigrate the Jewish people in order to um, solidify their own claims to the Jewish Bible, um, which was the horrible way to go. You know, there's, there's, there are different options, obviously, but that they chose an appalling one. So the church's response in the lead up to the Holocaust was quite a theological response because they had felt as though the Jews had relinquished their claim to being God's people, and so therefore they needed to be suppressed in some way. Absolutely. And you find, again, if you look at the Polish literature, they're quoting from church canons, they're quoting from popes. Uh, if you go to Germany, you have one of the top confessing church people says, look, you know, should we criticise Hitler? Shouldn't we rather say on the basis of 1,700 years of church history, Hitler's doing the right thing with the church's support? So they're looking at their theology, they're looking at their history, and they're finding in that reasons to persecute Jewish people, which again is just unbearable. Now you like to talk about a progression that got to the point where mass murder was on no one's mind until such a time as the time was right for that to actually emerge. Uh, there's this whole 1800 years of history that you say there is a progression of things that happen. Take us quickly through that. We might be able to enlarge on some of them later, but what's, in a nutshell, how does that progression work? Okay, um, 100 to 400 AD, the church is a powerless minority, so you have vilification, because that's all you can do. So you have a whole body of literature called Adversus Judaeos. It has its own name because there's so much of it. And they're vilifying the Jewish people. 400 AD, you find that with Constantine, the church gets power. And so they start enacting laws against Jews. So you get this, you go from vilification to boycotts to exclusions. One of the things they did was they said you can't repair or paint a synagogue. And the reason was that the synagogue theologically was falling apart. It was out of date. And so they bring in this law so the synagogue will look like what their theology says it should be. Um, so then you, you have these boycotts, you have laws against Jews from 400 through till about 1200. And then you start getting, again, the church is getting more powerful with the medieval papacy. And they start having expulsions. And so you get Jews expelled from France, from Germany three times, from England. And you get hymns in churches praising the rulers who kicked the Jews out of the country. Uh, which, again, is unbearable. Now, the Jews are being kicked from country to country, and, again, they're doing this for theological reasons. They say, look, you know, like Cain was a wanderer, so the Jewish people must be wanderers. We must expel them, this sort of deal. 
And then finally you get ghettoization, where from about 1600 onwards you have Jews imprisoned in tiny ghettos in each town or city, maybe one street by two streets. They're not let out of those. And if the men can work, but the women, the kids stay there, and for 400 years they're imprisoned for the crime of being Jewish. So that, that, that was the end of the church progression because Augustine had said you're not allowed to kill Jews, um, meaning the totality, not individuals. But th- there was no genocide in the church policy. But it did progress from vilification. And then when that got the numbers, it went on to yeah, boycotts, um, expulsions, and then ghettoization was the final stage of the church policy. Reflect for me for a few moments, because we're talking about a history there uh, that takes us back to the earliest formation of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, which, if we're all uh, very open and honest, is the roots of all churches, whether you be Protestant or Catholic, uh, and, of course, uh, Orthodox there, uh, t- dating back to those early years as well. But but we all have this common uh, this common uh, trunk uh, of where our Christianity has come from. But take us to you know times uh, when Reformation times came because uh, you had Martin Luther, who people will often say was quite anti-Semitic. Uh, how does that help to shape the Protestant idea of, of uh, being almost anti-Jewish? Or, or being anti-Jewish, yes. Um, there are lots of strands, especially from English and Scottish Protestantism, which simply aren't anti-Jewish. They're very pro-Jewish. They read the Bible. They loved the Old Testament. It, it was a wonderful change. For European Protestantism, uh, Luther, Calvin, Busa, what they did and what they didn't do meant that European anti-Semitism continued on into European Protestantism. Um, Luther has a mixed, he's a mixed bag, um, his early days, he'd wrote some fantastic stuff. As he got older, he wrote some appalling stuff, and that was never distanced from, it was never disowned by the Lutheran church. So he said Jews should be driven from their homes, they should be have their books burnt, um, they should be made in, forced into um, slave labor, this sort of thing. He praised the Catholics for expelling the Jews from Spain. So he said appalling things. He said they're just devils and nothing more. And this was never denounced by the Lutheran Church. So in 1938, you have one of the top Lutheran bishops in Germany compiling all of Luther's anti-Semitic statements as a great thing. And he writes, he's finished his book When Kristallnacht Occurs and Synagogues Are Burning Across Germany. And he writes in the beginning then, um, this is just a wonderful thing, you know, synagogues are burning across Germany just as Luther, the father of German Protestantism, would have wanted. So he's totally affirming as a Lutheran bishop in Germany in 1938 these statements by Luther. Now, not every Lutheran believed them, not every Lutheran read them, but because they were never disowned, they sat there as this um, thing that could be appropriated by people who wanted to hate Jews. There was no renunciation of the Catholic anti-Semitism. Well, I mentioned we were turning the blowtorch on the church again today, not with the intent of simply dragging up old things, dirty laundry, just for the sake of airing the dirty laundry, but we'll want to look at some of the things that we can learn from the challenges and the issues of the past. And while we're talking about all of this bad side that developed theologically, let me ask your reflection on the fact that back at the time of the Second World War, there was no Jewish state. There was no nation of Israel. Uh, sometimes we think of that importance of having the nation of Israel as being, uh, yes, we can see they are God's chosen people. But really right up until that time, uh, this suppression of the Jews was going on in a super significant way to the point where the Holocaust was able to happen. It's amazing because the church demonized the Jews because they didn't want people to think that they were still um, the recipients of God's love. But they were already dispersed. They were already not doing too well. Um, so the hatred that was directed at the dispersed Jew, those churches that haven't repented of that, um, it's turned in steroids onto the ingathered Jew, where they've been gathered to their own nation. They're, they're thriving. They seem to be in God's blessing. They're not being wiped out by largest forces. If the church could have realized what was happening, I think they would have been sort of happy with the Jews being dispersed, but they, they hated them there. And for churches that didn't repent of that, they hate even more the ingathered Jew. You, you find the German Christians, again, in the 1939, they feared Zionism more than anything because they said if the Jews will come back to their own nation, that'll be, you know, it's almost a sign that God still loves them, um, which, of course, it is. 
That's right. Now, while we're tiring a lot of people with a, a brush which is very, very heavy, uh, there were those who rejected all of that theology that had developed over centuries and were people who did love the Jews and cared for the Jews, rescued the Jews where they could. And perhaps that's a minority that we're talking about. But uh, tell me about those who did care for the Jews when those things were getting so tough as the Holocaust was unfolding. Okay, well, we'll look at two levels here. Firstly, the churches that um, rescued Jews and then at individuals, if, if we can do that. Yep. So if you look at the churches, again, the picture is basically very black, but there are some incredibly shining lights um, in that blackness. Uh, we've got the Huguenot village of Les Chambon in France, which people may have heard about. An Australian author's recently written on them, and a Jewish author wrote about them a few, or about 20 years ago. You have, interestingly, the Baptists in the Ukraine. We don't know anything about them much, but it's just the odd sentence here and there says the Baptists in the Ukraine um, helped the Jewish population there. And I can't find anything more about that, just these odd references in sort of small publications here and there. And then you have... Very interestingly, from my point of view, the Bulgarian Orthodox. And you see these guys and they have these funny black hats and they have senses and they just look really weird. And they were just incredibly wonderful Christians. And because of them, Bulgaria ended the war with more Jewish people than it began it with. And they just, they did what no other church in Europe did. They were just amazing. Colin, very, I mean, we're going to let this conversation bubble along and we'll want to come to some conclusions towards the end of our conversation. But what are the sort of main things that we ought to be learning from the challenges that we've had from the past? Do you want to just stick with rescuers now? Uh, well, uh, yeah, that, that, that might be useful. Yeah, uh, well, we can stick, stick with rescuers because uh, rescuers obviously were doing something that was positive yeah, and yeah, useful yeah. and it was an action uh, that, was, uh, that was bearing yeah. good fruit. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but the idea of being a watchman on the wall, uh, someone, okay. who is, uh, someone who is interested in making sure that those things don't happen again. Certainly. What, what, well, people have looked at these churches that were good, you know, um, Huguenots in France, Baptists in Ukraine, Bulgarian Orthodox, and they said... What on earth do they have in common? You know, and it's, it's really hard to think it through. And then they said, you know, the one thing they have in common is that all of them had, were, had suffered in recent history for being Christians, and they knew it was okay to be opposed to the state, whereas the church in Germany was, you know, they had to get state approval. They got paid by the state. Um, they weren't prepared to go against the state because that was just unthinkable, you know, the church of Germany sort of deal, whereas the churches that had knew that it was all right to suffer for righteousness' sake. They were the ones who were prepared to go and step outside the government, oppose the government, and do what was, was godly. If we look at individuals, um, individuals who were, you know, they're called righteous Gentiles, um, individuals who risked their lives to save Jewish people in the Second World War, again, tiny number of them, but incredible people. And I sort of get the feeling that if you were a rescuer, a righteous Gentile, then you probably spent the rest of your life filling out forms for social scientists who would just sort of love to investigate these people. And did you own your own home? Did you send your kids to a Christian school? Did you have a mortgage? Um, all these questions they ask them saying, how are they different from everybody else? What, what set them apart? So one of the questions they asked them was, you know, are you very or are, are you religious? And they could sort of say, very, somewhat, you know, not at all, and then getting into the negative side, into, you know, being very anti-religious. And what they found was that the proportion of religious as opposed to non-religious rescuers is exactly the same as society in general, as it was with home ownership, all these other things. If you sent your kids to a Christian school, it made no difference. But when they looked at slightly finer detail, more rescuers were either very religious or very non-religious. So they knew their own minds. These were individuals who thought for themselves. When you get to the very religious rescuers, the depressing thing is they said, you know, what motivated you to rescue the Jewish people? And a majority, over 50%, didn't even list religion as one of the reasons why they did so. And then, you know, that when they looked at what did motivate rescuers, what they found is it was kindness. And more than that, it was learnt kindness. They found that rescuers came from families that would sort of say, oh, that person's alone. You know, that's, they're a stranger in church. Let's have them around for a meal. Or there's a person needs some shoes on the street, whatever. They were just, as children, they were in families that showed kindness to strangers. 
And they were only little things, but they were faithful in little. And that meant they were faithful in much. Helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Well, a great conversation that we're having this hour, one that you can get your teeth into and one that has some profound impact on the way we think about our lives today across so many different dimensions. Our special guest is Colin Barnes. His book is called They Conspire Against Your People, The European Churches and the Holocaust. Now, we are talking about a, a time in the lead up to what was the most significant, perhaps, event of the whole of the 20th century. Well, you can make your comment, 1-800-316-316. Uh, we'll take some calls uh, in just a few moments. In fact, why don't we take a, we'll just take a call now and okay. uh, before we get into the next part of our conversation. But let's hear from Elizabeth <laughs> on the Gold Coast in Queensland. Hello, Elizabeth. Welcome along. Very well, Elizabeth. What are your thoughts on our conversation today? Um, look, back, um, back historically, uh, the Catholic Church uh, changed the day, the Sabbath day from Saturday to the Sunday. How is it that all churches that are not Catholic for, go to church on Sunday and not on Saturday? Uh, your response first, uh, Colin, uh, and, uh, and I'll, uh, I'll add my bit afterwards. Okay, we do find... Even in the Book of Acts, that they're meeting on the first day. Um, at the same time, you find that, especially certainly the Catholic Church, um, 190 AD, was saying we won't, you know, we will hate the Sabbath and will execrate the Sabbath. So you have a definite anti-Sabbath feeling within the Catholic Church, which is, again, tragic. Um, but the, the a lot of Christians met on the first day as um, remembering the resurrection of Christ. I'm not sure, while it certainly can be anti-Christian, sorry, anti-Jewish, it doesn't have to be. You also find when Paul is talking on the Sabbath, it talks about him speaking until a guy falls asleep. And this would have been because you were speaking in the evening. Um, sorry, that's, I'm getting off the track there. But yes, I think it, it certainly can be anti-Jewish, but it doesn't have to be. Uh, Elizabeth, a, a good question, and uh, one we actually answered quite significantly yesterday when we were talking about the Ten Commandments. Uh, some listeners might remember our conversation about the Ten Commandments yesterday and uh, talking about Sunday as the day in which uh, the disciples uh, celebrated the resurrection. And, of course, as the church began to grow, uh, we would recognize that the disciples even uh, went along to uh, Jewish uh, celebrations on a Saturday, but then they met themselves to worship on a Sunday, aligning themselves with that resurrection day. But what you're bringing is a very important point, and I think the connection is this, is the fact that the Christian church meets on a Sunday something that was anti-Semitic. And I think you've answered that already, Colin, by suggesting that uh, it need not be, and it probably isn't. It, it certainly was at points in church history, but it certainly doesn't need to be. Would Yeah, that would be my, I agree with you on that. Thank you so much to Elizabeth from the Gold Coast. We're taking calls on one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. Let's hear from Union Jack in Victoria. Hello, Jack. Welcome along. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, look, I just um, I, the word Holocaust. We always think about the Jews. I mean, uh, there is the Ulster Holocaust and there is the Norwegian Holocaust, which was very much what we were talking about. And the word Quisling, which means collaborator, that's a but the Prime Minister of Norway at the time in the Norwegian Holocaust to actually facilitate a lot of the Jews to go to extermination camps. So that's where the word Quisling comes from. Uh, I'm, hello, still there? Yeah, we're still here. Uh, so I'm, I'm really thinking, because I'm from Northern Ireland, and I'm from uh, well near a place called Portadown, <clears throat> and there was the Ulster Holocaust, because, I mean, I've got a faith, and religion is a very different thing from faith, and in fact, quite often diametrically opposite. Now, the uh, Ulster Holocaust, a particular religion, well, the Roman Catholic religion, uh, because we're all heretics, if we're not in that religion, in their opinion, well, the Ulster Holocaust was maybe a couple of hundred thousand non-Roman Catholics sort of slaughtered there, so well, that's all in Google. Thank God for Google because uh, 
But Jack, I think you're you're raising uh, some points about a whole bunch of different uh, holocausts and uh, where there's been a heretical nature of groups within the church and the church has taken a hard line and and things have happened where there's been some mass exterminations. But uh, your thoughts, Colin, on on some of these other uh, European holocausts that were happening around the same time? Yes, certainly they're horrific. Um, my studies are focused on the Jewish Holocaust. Um, because I think it is very important, but certainly that's not to denigrate other people's sufferings by any means, and the Armenian Holocaust, etc. And while Jack is on the phone, uh, some of the lessons that we take from the lead-up to the Jewish Holocaust, uh, many of these things have been progressive in these other areas of Holocaust too, no doubt. Yes, I mean, yes, definitely. Thank you so much to Union Jack from Victoria. We're talking uh, through these issues about the Holocaust. You might like to contribute to our conversation on one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. Let's hear from Robin in Mount Morgan. Hello, Robin. Welcome along. Yes. Hi, Neil. Um, yeah, this this is right up my alley. All of this um, because it it reaches right up till today, and really the whole Bible is the answer to it all. Um, I think in general, um, you know, underneath there's a spiritual. Thing or camping all the time. Um, the devil is out to kill anything that has God's uh, imprint on it, which is the Jews as well as Christians, blah, blah, blah. And, and I think that what's been touched on is how religion can, you know, doctrine, church doctrine overrides what actually God is doing and can be counterproductive and against working against God. And um, about the Jewish thing, because I've, I've studied a lot about the German German situation, and on, there's positives and negatives on both sides because in general, yes, the churches all uh, were working against the Jews and were persecuting them, and um, and actually that came as a reaction to a move of God that was in England, and it actually jumped over to Germany, and the German uh, leaders of the churches all got together, and I heard about this recently, they got together and they banned this new move of God, which then opened the way for the deception when the Nazis came in. But the other thing I wanted to say in the positive was, yes, there, are, there were a lot of people, both Christian as well as maybe even non-Christians, who had a conscience and uh, saved the Jews and went out of their way and actually died for them. But particularly, I want to give attention to these high-profile army officers who got together and it's uh, written the whole story is written by uh, von Schlabendorf uh, he was the only one that survived and that was by miracle after miracle because Hitler murdered all the others and it's called his book was The Secret War Against Hitler now these were um, army Robin guys. there's a lot of a lot of points in what you're making there and uh, let's get a response from Colin on uh, some of the main points that Robin might have been making yes certainly um there was a group called Amisi Israel, which was founded within the Catholic Church, and that was squashed um, by the papacy uh, just in the years leading up to the Holocaust, and it was very pro um, the Jewish people. It was trying to win them to Christ through showing them the gospel. Yes, you're, you're absolutely right. The Bible is the complete answer to anti-Semitism, and it's also, again, 100% tragic when Christianity or doctrines are found to be opposed to um, God's revelation on earth. And Robin, while you're still on the line, uh, you mentioned too that it's Christians and Jews that have been the target of yes. uh, of, uh, of a lot of uh, persecution. Yes. Uh, Colin, your thoughts? Certainly. Um, can I just say that um, that group, that army group, they were both Catholics and Protestants as well. And they were working together just um, against Hitler. They were sending supposedly spies to other countries on paper, but they were Jews. They were sending them to their freedom. So uh, I, just, I just find it so exciting. Robin, great thoughts in there, and I want to thank you so much for calling us today here on 2020. We are going to continue our talkback conversation in the next hour after Vision National News. And wanting to invite listeners to join into our conversation. We've got a, a conversation that's underway and we are talking about a new book, They Conspire Against Your People, The European Churches and the Holocaust. The author is Colin Barnes. Colin is in the studio with me today and we are taking calls and we are talking through some very serious things. He argues that the Nazi Holocaust did not begin with genocide but progressed through a series of stages 
vilification, boycotts, deportation, ghettoization, and only then mass murder. Colin, let's take a call from Newitt in South Australia. Hello, is it Newitt? Is that the way I pronounce your name? Yes, yes, you got it correctly. Great, Newitt. Well, lovely to hear from you. What are your thoughts on our conversation today? Well, I think it's uh, wonderful um, because I have learned a lot more through uh, Dr. Chuck Missler and a few other things about all the background, about how leading up to, you know, the Holocaust and all that. So I really appreciate um, Colin's book that brought up all that. um, um, So we understand a bit more. Uh, But I just want to talk about something much more positive. Um, Well, I mean, to me, you know, the positive side, um, I... um, I know nothing much about Israel apart from what's in the Bible and been going to church for years. But uh, during the time of my illness and confinement, God just dropped in my heart. That's how I can describe it, a passionate love for Israel. And I just went through all the uh, prophet books and I just felt a deep love and a deep pain of the fathers for um, for that nation, you know. Knew it. That is a wonderful uh, thing that's and, happened and, to and, you. And I went to church, and I, I think it's only four or five people that can really understand what I'm talking about. And so now I'm really praying. And when I'm, I'm very encouraged that um, John Huggy, when I read his book, he had experience. He was talking that he took a tour to um, the Welling Wall in Israel, and like many other pastor, took tour, took tour. And he just stood by that wall next to a uh, an elderly um, Jewish man who is weeping, kissing the Bible, and just kissing the wall and kissing the Bible, kissing the wall, and and, and just weeping by his side. And he just felt that love and that pain for the two thousand years pain in that man's heart, and and it wouldn't go away. And uh, and then. Um, and then he asked God, what, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said, teach the church to love my people. And that's how his ministry turned around. Knew it. And, uh, great things that you're sharing there. And uh, response from Colin to what Newitt is sharing. I think that's absolutely wonderful, Newitt. Um, it's a beautiful thing when you look in Acts 3 and Peter is preaching to the men of Israel as he starts off. And he says, when God raised Jesus from the dead, he sent him first to you. And you think, I wonder why God would send Jesus first to the Jewish people, men of Israel. Is it to sort of say, well, you shouldn't have killed me or to condemn them or this or that? And he says, he sent him first to you to bless you. And God still loves the Jewish people. That's his heart. He's not a divorcee. Um, We we can trust God because he doesn't know how to give up on us. In every generation, there is a remnant saved by faith. And finally, we're told all Israel will be saved. And they'll say, you know, God is amazing. Um, He gave us his law, he gave us his land, he gave us godly kings, godly prophets. We killed his own son, and yet he kept on loving us. We're just monuments to his grace. We're monuments to the fact that God's love is more powerful than anything else in this universe. And God loves the Jewish people, and he shared that love with you, and that's an amazing and a wonderful thing. Thank you so much to Newitt from South Australia. Our talkback line remains open on 1-800-316-316. Colin, let's come back to what was happening at the time in the lead-up to the Holocaust. Uh, You talk about what is called the German church struggle. Uh, Tell me what that means. Okay. um, There's a lot of different views of this, but essentially the German church struggle was a struggle by the church for the church against the church. Um, sometimes we sort of we can view it as like the Nazis were trying to take over the church and the church stood up and had the Barman Declaration and stuff. That that wasn't the case. What you had was Christians within the church fighting other Christians within the church. Um, neither side were ever kicked out. Neither side thought it was important enough to have a split over. But they were both operating within this larger evangelical church. You had German Christians on one side who wanted to become much more like the Nazi party and you had confessing Christians on the other side um, who wanted to have much more strength in their doctrine. But we'll, we'll look at the two sides um, briefly now, shall we? Uh, yes, because one of those is uh, the German Christians, and uh, you like to talk about liberals and ethics without doctrine. Uh, how does that all fit together? Okay. Sometimes we think of the German Christians, we just say, oh, they were just Nazis. They're just, you know, who cares about them? They're crazies. But they weren't. They, they were solid. In, in their own eyes, they were solid Christians. You had over 50 professors of theology, 
what you find is that they've been described as a liberal sect who sought to win the disinterested to Christianity by adopting the jargon of the day and interpreting the Christian message in terms of current events. And they saw God's hand in secular history and in current social trends. It's like when Obama talks about the arc of history. Because being liberal, they rejected the inspiration of the Bible. And if you don't go to the Bible to find out what God wants, where do you go? And they said, well, history reveals God. So you go to BuzzFeed because don't read the Bible. You know, read the local, whatever culture is doing now, that's what God is doing. And that, that's a scary place to be. And you align that even to some of the ethical challenges that our nation might be facing today and uh, even to the challenge of same-sex marriage, this idea that uh, if you go back to the time in the lead-up to the Holocaust, uh, the attempts to modify Protestantism to fit Nazi ideology. Do you see the church today uh, uh, changing the way that it, it believes things, changing its doctrine to fit an ideology which is like a, uh, you know, as you say, the buzzfeed. You have to be careful here that the church today isn't, you know, advocating a Holocaust or anything. But no. we can look at, we can say this is a liberal group that say we find what God is doing through history and we want to align the church with modern social trends. And that's exactly what is happening with same-sex marriage. And one of the, one of the scary things is, as I said, Immanuel Hirsch, who is the top theologian of, and one of the greatest German theologians of all time, who was a German Christian, um, he, his major emphasis was on ethics and on morality. And the Christians who preached against Jews who advocated their expulsion, they felt good about themselves. And Satan can present himself as an angel of light. And you find today, you know, people who are for same-sex marriage feel virtuous, and this is the moral thing to be doing, and how could you be opposed to it? This is crazy. And that's the same things you find coming through in the German Christians, that they do evil think, thinking it's virtuous. And that, that's quite frightening. Need to come back to the Bible. Let's talk about the confessing church. Uh, explain what you mean by the confessing church and, and how uh, the conservatives and doctrine without ethics is dead. Okay, the, the confessing church start. Well, what happened was the, okay, the, the Black Synod of 19... 19- 33 in Prussia said we're going to kick all the Jewish pastors out of the church because that's what German society as a whole is advocating and so that the Nazis didn't say you have to but on their own bat they said let's kick out Jewish pastors and the confessing church arose in opposition to them so it arose after that and they said no we shouldn't kick out Jewish pastors and then they had to sort of work out well why shouldn't we and there were two roads they could have taken and they took the doctrinal route which said They've been baptized, therefore they're no longer Jewish. So it wasn't a particularly pro-Jewish move, but they're saying, look, you know, they're baptized, the efficacy of baptism is at stake, and so you have the Bible is important to them and their doctrines are important to them, and that's where the confessing church comes. We'll be looking at Bonhoeffer in a second, but he took the ethical route and he said, they're my brothers in Christ, how could I abandon them? In any event, the confessing church then was saying, we've got to defend Jewish pastors and then they fail because without love, doc- doctrine without love just can't make it. They, needed to, you know, they didn't have that feeling that these are my brothers in Christ, how could I abandon them? So by 1939, you have six state churches in Germany expelling all, Jew- all baptized Jews, not only the- there were 18 pastors at risk, and then they expelled all baptized Jews from church services. Um, if we quote from one of the leading um, confessing church guys, Bishop Otto de Balius, He wrote in 1933, My dear brethren, we all not only understand but are fully sympathetic to the recent motivations out of which the Folkish movement has emerged. I myself have always considered myself an anti-Semite. One can't ignore that Jewry has played a leading role in the destructive manifestations of modern civilization. God bless us Christians and our Easter proclamation. So you have this appalling, even in in supposedly the good guys, um, that's where they're coming from. You get... Pastor Hans Ehrenberg, who was one of the Jewish pastors, he came under public attack as a Jewish Christian. He appealed to his fellow confessing pastors and he said, I need Christian brothers who show they aren't only looking out for their own, but you know that will care for me. And in response to this, his confessing church superior, Karl Koch, told him to resign. So you have this total failure of people who are really interested in doctrine but have no actual love, and, and without love we are nothing. 
And you mentioned Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of the great champions of this time and a great theologian as well. Uh, what is it that is so special about Bonhoeffer and his approach to cutting through all of those things that were influencing the churches? I think it was simply his love. Um, he just passionately loved the Jewish pastors. He he realized that it was about the Jewish people, not simply about doctrine. Um, he was also prepared to die. And that's something, you know, we can be too in love with this world. We can be too ensnared with the deceit of riches, as Jesus talks about deceit not growing. You find one of the pastors, one of the confessing pastors after the war said, we were all scared of crossing the Nazi regime at its most sensitive point. And somebody else has asked, well, isn't loving your neighbor a pretty sensitive point for Christians? Because the guy said, you know, what must I do to be saved? Jesus said, love your neighbor. We should have said, look, you know, we realize the Nazis are pretty, you know, passionate about Jews. But frankly, we're pretty passionate about our neighbors. How could we let them go? We will not, or we will no longer be Christian. And... You know, you have that lovely verse in Revelation. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, and because they love not their own lives unto death. And unless you're prepared to suffer, you could no longer follow Christ. One, one more quick quote is, Amerson was a German confessing pastor, and he wrote in his Declaration of Guilt, We know that evil cannot be overcome through idealism, through revealing of its horrors, or through ordinary human strength. It can only be overcome through the word of God, prayer, and suffering. Profound things to learn from those sentiments. 1-800-316-316, our talkback line open, and uh, time is getting away. Let's take some calls. Let's hear from Chris in Victoria. Hi, Chris. Welcome along. Uh, thank you, Neil. Um, yeah, I just want to make a few comments. It's just that um, if you've ever been to the Yad Vashem, I mean, amongst all the hor- horrible things, uh, one thing sticks out. It says, Wherever European Christianity flourished, the Jews were persecuted. Um, and, you know, we know from the Inquisition that um, it was not, uh, you know, an Inquisition against everyone, but it was the papacy against the true Bible-believing Christians. And, you know, it, it, the papacy joined with uh, Muslims to create a Holocaust for the Jews. And in the future, well, I, this is just my own, and I stand on it, that the papacy will join with the Muslim Antichrist to create a Holocaust for the whole world. So... Beware the papacy, that's all I say. <laughs> Chris, uh, interesting thoughts in all of that. Uh, you got a response at all to, to those thoughts, Colin? It, it's certainly an incredibly, just a tragic and awful thing when you read that in Yad Vashem, and I have done that. Um, it's, it's just horrific that what should be the word of life has been so distorted by the churches, and it's Protestant as well as Catholic, um, to our shame. Thank you so much to Chris from Victoria for your insights today. We're taking calls 1-800-316-316. Let's hear from Sheila. Uh, I think we oh, we might have uh, Val in Mackay. Hello, Val. Welcome along. Well, hi there. Uh, I just wanted to share there's a prophetic picture in the Old Testament that shows what is going to happen in the last days. <coughs> In Israel, at one time, there were these three places of worship. There was the um, Temple of Solomon under construction, and it represents the living temple which Jesus is building now. There was also the Tabernacle of David, which it tells us in Acts represents the Gentile church. And there was also the tabernacle of Moses. It was outside of Jerusalem. I forget the place it was at. But um, there were these three places of worship. Now, when the um, temple was finished, they brought up the ark from the uh, tabernacle of David and put it in the Holy of Holies. And then they brought up the old tabernacle of Moses and put it in I imagine one of the storerooms but this is prophetic that um, in the end times the Jews and the Gentiles are going to come together and when that temple was finished Solomon dedicated it and was filled with the glory of God and, and that's a picture of your end time church Val, an interesting insight, and uh, noting that Val was my guest. She's written a couple of books herself 
uh, on uh, these interesting Old Testament images that we have and the prophetic nature that they may have towards uh, the understanding of an end times uh, story. But Val, uh, great thoughts. Uh, Do you have a a quick uh, comment uh, uh, on those, uh, Colin? It's wonderful in the New Testament. You look in Acts 15 and in Romans 15, and they say exactly the same thing. Romans 15.8 says Jesus became a servant to the Jews to confirm the promises to the patriarchs, which is all great if you're Israeli, and amen. And then it says, so that the Gentiles may praise him. And then you look in Acts 15, and again it says, at this time, you know, they, they quote from Amos, and this time you know, God will restore the fallen down tabernacle of David. And again, that would seem to me to be you know, restoring the, the Jewish people to their land. And then it says, so that the Gentiles who are called by his name may praise him. And God is always generous. He called Abraham to be a blessing to the world. He called the Jewish people to be a blessing to the world. And he's blessing them in order that we may be blessed. Uh, and it's, it's this lovely mutual generosity that just um, comes out of God at all times. It's just this, this beautiful picture of we are blessed to be a blessing to others. They are blessed to bless us. Um, Psalm 67 says exactly the same thing. Lord, bless us so that other nations may see you and glorify in you. A biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. This is 2020 on Vision Christian Radio. Good to have you along with us as we talk about the book They Conspire Against Your People, The European Churches and the Holocaust. And uh, those callers that are waiting on the line, I'll have to apologise. We won't be able to take any more calls. We're just running out of time and just need to bring some loose ends together in our conversation today. And Colin, as we talked about this conversation, really I said at the beginning, we're turning the blowtorch on the church again. And I've done this in recent days as well. And uh, always like to think that we are, in fact, if we raise those sorts of issues, if we air the dirty laundry, that we might really learn the lessons from the past. Uh, one of those lessons, of course, is, uh, is a ve- very apparent because there is now a nation of Israel. And the way we think about the theology of the Christian church, it really is very much a part of what God was doing all the time with his people. How do you just draw some loose ends together about the things we learn from the uh, the lead up to the Holocaust and the, the dreadful things that happened at that time? Okay. Um, you have to be very careful with Israel and the Holocaust because... It's fantastic that God has reestablished his people. Um, this is his promises coming true. This is his faithfulness. It's very hard to make a link between Israel and the Holocaust because grief doesn't answer to logic. Um, you get some Christians who just sort of very quickly say, well, you know, the world gave its answer to the Jewish people in 1945. God gave his answer in 1948. Or, you know, World War I prepared the land for the people and World War II prepared the people for the land. These sorts of comments, and you think, Two million children died in the Holocaust. Now, Israel is a great state, but it's not perfect. It needs Christ. You can't just make that jump and say, well, this equals that, because grief, you know, Jacob, um, Rachel refused to be comforted when their children were no more. And so we have to be very careful that, in a sense, the, well, the Holocaust is a graveyard, and a, a graveyard isn't a shortcut to somewhere else. You don't go there in order to go somewhere else. You, you go there to sit with the mourners and to weep with those who weep. And post-Holocaust theology, we'll just look at it very briefly, it's not about justifying God or providing neat answers. You know, we don't sort of think, oh, the cart's stumbling, we better put out our hand or God's reputation's going to be wrecked. God doesn't need that. What he needs us to do is simply weep with those who weep and to be with the mourners. And at the same time, I think true post-Holocaust theology has to lift our focus to God himself, God the Father. And we have to say, you know, if we ever glimpsed even for a second the pain that the Holocaust cost the Father, then we'd be compelled as an act of love and of worship to make sure with our own lives it never happened again to the Jewish people. Like if we could see the Father's heart and how it was torn, we'd say, I could never see that again. And that, that, that's where true post-Holocaust theology must be based. Is there a risk, Colin, that some Christian believers, uh, some church denominations in fact, are at risk of making some of those same mistakes again? Are we able to say those things are of the past and they'll never happen again? What are your thoughts on the potential for those things to happen? They're already happening. Um, If we look at vilification, you find 
the worst places in the world today to vilify the Jewish people, in the West at least, are Christian mainline churches. You have mock-ups of the security wall going around to churches in England. You have um, anti-BD or BDS um, boycott Israel motions in main churches in America, in England, in Australia. The largest distribution of anti-Israeli propaganda in Australia by orders of magnitude occurred when the Uniting Church put out their mission probe many years ago. Um, many churches simply feel that hatred of the state of Israel is simply part of their message, and that, again, is unbearable. And unbiblical? 100%, yes. Right. Um, God doesn't change, therefore you, O Israel, aren't destroyed. Um, if we saw the heart of God, you know, we, God shows us what he's like through all his different images and through interacting with us in relationship. And he's not a divorcee. We can trust him with ourselves because we can see how he was faithful to Israel. Look, I sin. I let God down. Does God just abandon me and pick someone else? He says, no, I will never let you go. And I look at Israel. And I think, yes, he never let Israel go. He won't let me go. In his faithfulness to them, I see his faithfulness to me. And that is such a blessing because we've all made appalling mistakes. And we know that God will not let us go because he hasn't let Israel go. That is such a powerful thought to end our conversation on. Uh, those Christian believers, we have faith and confidence in God that he won't let us go, that he won't let us fall out of the palm of his hand because he has been faithful to his chosen people, the people of Israel. Amen. Uh, let me just say, uh, people can get a hold of the book, uh, Colin Barnes' book called They Conspire Against Your People, The European Churches and the Holocaust. Uh, you can get a hold of that in Kurong Bookstore and uh, other Christian bookstores. Uh, can people get it online? A lot of, yes. uh, a lot of our uh, uh, listeners, uh, you might like to try and order through our Vision Store. We'll uh, we'll see if we can set up something there. Uh, any other place online that people can get a hold yes, of it? King's Evangelical Divinity School in London. Okay. Um, K- uh, King's Evangelical Divinity School. If you go to their bookstore, they now have it available worldwide, which is as a result of being shortlisted. Colin Barnes, great getting your insights today. Thanks so much for sharing these things with us on 2020. Thank you very much. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.